Uh, good morning, a very warm welcome to you in the room and to you if you're watching at home on our live stream. As Ben said, my name is Alex and I've been a part of Grace Church for quite a while now, so I'm kind of running out of ways to introduce myself. But as we're coming to the end of our month of prayer, I've been reflecting on my own journey with prayer and I thought I'd take a moment to share that with you. Um, I was raised in a Catholic I was raised in a Catholic church in a multi-faith family. And so my um, experience of prayer growing up was actually very liturgical. Um, and the only way I'd really describe that is, is set prayer. So I knew exactly what we were going to pray every week at church because either it was the same every week or every few weeks, or because there was a little booklet that I could read from and we'd all pray the same thing at the same time. And I do think there is something really beautiful about liturgy and written prayer and corporate prayer. But all to say, it was quite a shock for me then to come to Grace Church and to experience a time of worship as we have done this morning, um, where people are just praying out on their own, in their own words, um, out loud. Because if I ever did uh, attempt to speak to God outside of that liturgical framework, it was very much um, in my head, very private and um, very short and sweet. And um, it wasn't probably until about six months later that I first ventured to, to pray out loud in a more conversational way. And I remember sitting in my room at university um, on the floor, and I had what I can only really describe as an Elizabeth Gilbert moment. I don't know if anybody's read the book or seen the film Eat, Pray, Love, but there's a famous scene where she attempts to address God for the first time, and she says, Hello, God, it's Liz. It's nice to meet you. And I didn't say those words specifically, but it was a, a similar kind of sentiment of like, so this is a bit weird, isn't it? Um, my prayer life has continued to grow from there. And while I'm no pro, if there is such a thing, um, I did just want to highlight that prayer is a journey and a beautiful one of that. And I do hope you've been reminded of that these past couple of weeks. But even if you haven't, there's still so much opportunity to press in. And um, it's my prayer that by the end of today, you'll be reminded what a gift it is and you, you will feel encouraged to press in. So today, our series on Matthew and our month of prayer coincide beautifully in Matthew chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible, uh, please do turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. If you don't, the words will appear on the screens behind me and for you at home as well. I'm reading from the ESV translation, and it says this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, Will give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is quite a well-known passage on prayer, I'd say, and a, a challenging but profoundly encouraging one. And the reason I use the word encouraging is because I believe this is exactly what Jesus is trying to do in this passage. He's trying to put courage in us, instill confidence in us, to pray. And while he doesn't use the word prayer specifically, he does use the words ask, seek, and knock, which are all synonyms for prayer. Um, ask, I suppose, is pretty self-explanatory. 
seek is often used in the Bible for prayer. So Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And it's not a, a literal seeking. We're not playing a massive game of hide and seek with God. Uh, let's face it, if we were, we would always lose. He would always win because we can't see him. Um, but it's more of a, a figurative thing. It's figurative language of um, meeting with God in prayer. And knocking, well, knocking on the doors of mercy was actually a Jewish expression for prayer. So for Matthew writing this and for everybody that he was um, you know, writing to at the time, they'd immediately have been able to make that um, connection between you know, the, the link to that expression and prayer. So it's three different ways of saying the same thing. Pray, pray, pray. Which could sound a bit overwhelming, but how many of you know that actually when we're excited about something and we, we want someone to share in that experience, that's exactly how we talk. You know, if you've ever eaten something delicious, it's fork out, taste this, or children say it when they've seen something amazing, like, look, dog. Although I do know a lot of adults who do that as well. Um, <laughs> or when you hear, you know, a great new song or a new band, it's like, listen to this. So as we continue with this passage, I hope you'll hear Jesus's heart behind it. Pray, do it, it's so good. It begs the question though, what should we pray for? And honestly, I could hypothesize based on some of the things in the passage, but um, I don't feel like it specifically says in this one, Jesus has already walked us through the Lord's Prayer um, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, so there is a, a good framework for that. Um, but here, I think the suggestion is that we can ask for anything that is good. And how should we pray? Does the text say anything about that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, although we have the words ask, seek, knock, the translation is more akin to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And it's not that you can't ask for something simply. And I don't necessarily think it means you have to do it in that order. Like first you ask, then you seek, then you knock. But uh, the emphasis is certainly that prayer should be a, a regular and um, habitual part of our lives and we're to persevere in making it so. And why should we pray? It's a valid question, right? Especially as in um, Matthew chapter six, so just a chapter earlier, Jesus has said that God knows what we need. So if God knows what I need, why do I need to um, pray to him? Well, there's lots of reasons that aren't explicit in this passage. But, you know, first of all, Jesus did it. And as disciples of Jesus, we're committed to doing what Jesus did, including communion and baptism and fasting, which Rosie touched on last week. It's one of the primary ways we can know God and know his will more. How do you get to know people? By talking to them and asking questions and listening. And it's a way for us to express our dependence upon God. The relationship in this passage is about father and child. And as much as children love to think they can do everything themselves, they can't. They need to ask for help and support. And in the same way, that's how we're to approach God is to um, ask for help and support and to come to him in dependence. And prayer is a way of expressing that. It's, God, I'm not in control of my own life. You are, and I need you. And that's, that gives him glory, which is exactly what we're created to do. But I think the main encouragement from this passage is um, that we should pray because if we ask God for good gifts, he will give us good. 
And if that's the case, why would we not? Why would we not take him up on that invitation? And honestly, I feel like I could end the preach here and it would be you know, relevant to the text and, and uh, true to who God is, but I'm guessing most of you, myself included, would leave feeling pretty dissatisfied because there's a bit of an elephant in the room. And it's namely, we don't always get what we ask for. So what do we do with that? Have you ever asked for something good and not received it? We have this thing in my family called Tuesday presents. And contrary to what it sounds like, Tuesday presents are not presents that you receive on a Tuesday. They're essentially anything that you ask for for Christmas or your birthday that some people would consider mundane or boring. So if you love cooking, maybe normally you'd ask for a recipe book, but the Tuesday present equivalent would be like asking for a new spatula because yours is broken. Or if you're into gaming and you want a new PlayStation or a new game, well, the Tuesday present equivalent is asking for a new phone charger. Um, or maybe you love like perfume or, I don't know, a great body wash or something. But actually what you've asked for is a bath mat because yours is like a bit grubby now. Um, I think it, they're just a little bit meh, like Tuesday. But as I was thinking about this, <laughs> I was like, I was born on a Tuesday, so I don't know why my family are hating on Tuesday so much. <laughs> anyway, one birthday, um, I went to my parents and I was like, Mum, Dad, I've been out of home quite a while now. And, you know, life is hard and adulting is hard. And all the admin that comes with it is really overwhelming. But I feel like I've, I've thought of something that's really going to help me with this. And they're like, great, yes, what is it? And I'm like, okay, I know it's a big ask, but what I'd really like is a paper shredder, as in a machine that shreds paper and documents and things. And there was a bit of a pause, and then simultaneously, they were like, no, absolutely not. I think my dad is actually a bit like, <laughs> no. Um, and I was like, why not? I need it. It's what I want. And they were like, Alex, we're not getting you a paper shredder for your 25th birthday. That's, that's too much. That is beyond boring. We, we didn't think there was a limit to, uh, you know, the boundaries of what a Tuesday present is, but clearly there is, and you have just stepped over it. It is a no from us. So um, as my birthday came around and I just had to settle for, you know, like the shiny things like jewelry and camera and uh, a vase or whatnot. So we don't always get what we want. <laughs> Full disclosure, a couple of months later, I was sorting my purse out and I found an Argos voucher that was about to expire. And I was like, what am I going to do with an Argos voucher? And then it was like, ping. Um, one click and click later, and I've got a beautiful black wearing box in our spare room. And I've never looked back. Um, until I found out that shredded paper isn't recyclable. So, hey, save the planet, guys. Use sparingly. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, if we don't always get what we ask for, or at least not in the way we expect it, what do we do with this seeming contradiction? How do we take God at his word when it doesn't seem to match our reality? Well, I've got three things for us to consider in light of our lived experience. They don't rhyme. 
and they don't start with the same letter, but I'm sure there's something in them anyway. And the first is we need to consider who is making the promise? Who's making the promise? Because how many of you know that how much you believe a promise depends on who's making it? If you've got two friends and they're like, we're going to be there on time, we're not going to be late, do you trust the one who is known for their punctuality or the one who is consistently late? And I'm not casting aspersions on my friends because I, I think I'm actually the late one in this scenario. But um, we do need to know who's making the promise. And verse 11 tells us it's our Father who is in heaven. Our Father in heaven. And do you know what this means? It means God is not, um, God is not our Father on earth. And I say that tongue-in-cheek because what I actually mean is God is not like our earthly father. And that should be of great comfort to us. It should be of great comfort to you if your experience with your earthly parents or your primary caregivers was terrible because it means that God is infinitely better. It should be of comfort to you if your experience with your earthly parents was great because it means God is infinitely better. Um, and even the best parents have flaws. Uh, I think one of the light bulb moments of becoming an adult is when you realize that you're shaped by your parents and your parents have been shaped by their parents and their parents have been shaped by their parents. And actually, it's for better or for worse, isn't it? Whether, whether they were kind or um, abusive, whether they were present or absent, passive, proactive, um, emotionally healthy or emotionally stunted and uh, encouraging, critical, and a whole spectrum in between. Yet, Jesus's point here is that for the most part, and I appreciate there are exceptions, even the most flawed parents generally will strive to give good to their children. You know, if your child asks for bread, are you going to give them a stone? No. Or if they ask for a fish, are you going to give them a snake? Absolutely not. Well, if imperfect, sinful parents can do that, don't you think that your perfect, sinless father uh, wants to do so much more? And the answer is yes, yes, he does. There is no one who wants good for you as much as God wants for his children. He's a good father, and we can trust him. And the second thing, then, we need to consider the promise as I was looking into this passage, I found myself asking, so what is this good that God is promising? Is it bread and fish? Because I'm all for a, you know, salmon and cream cheese bagel, but I'm hoping there's a bit more to it than that. So I started digging around, looking at the words, and um, there's actually two different Greek words used here that I don't think come out in all of the translations. Uh, but they do in the ESV, and it says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And the first word is um, doma, and it means gift, uh, I suppose, in the sense of a present, or Paul uses it later in the, Old Test in the New Testament to refer to like a, a gift of monetary, monetary value. The second is the word agathos, which is the word used for good things, but the, the things bit doesn't really exist in the Greek, so it kind of just becomes good. If you, um, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good to those who ask him? And then when I looked at the same passage in Luke's gospel, it reads, 
If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And I felt really this just highlighted that. I don't know that the, the good things God gives us are necessarily the things that we deem good or what we deem best, but rather what he deems good and what he deems best. If we don't have a concept of God as good father, then that can seem a bit unfair. But when we know that he is perfect in wisdom, that he is all-knowing, that he can't make a wrong decision, that his motives are pure, um, you know, that he, he, his heart is to bless us, then actually, far from being disappointing, this is a profoundly encouraging and reassuring concept. Because I, I don't know about you, but I'm actually quite glad I haven't received everything that I've asked God for, because I think my life would look uh, a lot worse from it. But God knows what is good. And the flip side of that, he can be trusted not to give us things that are harmful to us. Under Jewish law, the people could eat fish, but they couldn't eat snakes or eels, like water snakes. I don't know how you describe them. Um, but the point in this passage then is no good Jewish father in his right mind would give his kid a snake, something that he knew is going to violate the law and make the child ceremonially unclean. You just wouldn't do that. And in the same way, God is often good and kind as to deny us our request because we don't fully understand what we're asking for. A good parent doesn't give their child everything they want. They don't let them play with knives or plug sockets. So often, we are asking for stones because it looks like bread, but God in his graciousness doesn't grant it because he's like, you don't actually want that and I've got something better for you instead. He also isn't deceptive in the gifts that he gives us. I don't know about you, but when I think of bread and stones, I think of maybe like a white loaf that we have at communion and then something like gray and Jagged? I'm not really sure. Anyway, they're quite different in my head. But to the original hearers of Jesus's message, the flat, pale bread that they'd eat was not that dissimilar to the flat, pale stones that would have lined the beaches of Israel. So actually, uh, if you wanted to, you probably could trick a child into thinking you're giving them bread when actually you're giving them a stone. But God's not like that. He doesn't play tricks on us. And he doesn't toy with us. And honestly, that's a, a big thing for me to say, because it's something that I struggled with for a really long time. I remember being in church a few years ago, and I can't remember what the talk was about, but I, I had this image in my mind's eye of all these good things on a shelf, except the shelf was really high, as high up as these screens. And I remember saying to God, I was like, oh, it's not that I don't believe you give good gifts, but I don't think I believe that you give them to me. And what's more, I feel like you're showing them to me, but not letting me have them, which feels really cruel. Similarly, um, I've had other instances in my life where I've had people pray for me and say really encouraging things, um, you know, based on the truth of God's word. But my response has just been to cry and cry and cry not in a good, oh, I'm so overwhelmed way, but actually because in my heart, I was going, God, if you don't mean it, you can't say these things to me. Like, you can't promise me things 
that you're not going to follow through with because it sounds too good to be true. And if it is too good to be true, it's, it's just going to wreck me. Um, and actually, in both instances, the people praying for me had to be like, what's going on here? Because we're telling you good things, and this isn't the response we were expecting. But the reality was I found it really difficult to trust God for good things. And why did I think like that? Well, it's partly what we've already talked about in the sense of we're all shaped by our own experiences of life and uh, we come up with these narratives and these beliefs that we then project onto God and we have to go through a process of relearning truth. But partly, is it not just the age-old lie that we've been believing since the beginning of humanity? You know, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are given everything that is good and there's limits around one tree which is not good for them. But then the deceiver comes along and is like, oh, did God really say that if you eat that fruit, you're going to die? Because it's not true and it's actually really good. He just, he just doesn't want you to have it. And suddenly, Adam and Eve are thinking, oh, maybe we got God wrong. Maybe he isn't all he's cracked up to be. Maybe he doesn't have our best interests at heart. And that seed of doubt still exists today, right? Especially when we're faced with circumstances that are objectively not good. A loved one dying prematurely, chronic illness, miscarriage, relationships breaking down, abuse, addiction, infertility, stress, heartbreak, a toxic work environment, COVID, mental health challenges, how often do we have to, to fight the whisper that says, oh, if he were good, these bad things wouldn't be happening? Or he doesn't really have your best interests at heart in all of this. Well, when faced with these things and questioning the goodness of God, there is one more thing that we can do, and that is consider Jesus. And it seems like the Sunday school answer I know, like, oh, the answer's always Jesus. But it actually kind of is. Tim Keller, an American theologian and pastor, puts it like this. We can have confidence that God will answer us because one terrible day, he did not answer Jesus. In Mark 14, Jesus prays, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yeah, not what I will, but what you will. And we all know, and we sang about it this morning, that that cup of suffering does not get taken from Jesus. He still had to go to the cross. He was slandered and tortured and strung up on a tree to die. And not because of anything that he did, but because of all the sinful stuff that we've done and do and continue to do. But the good news of the gospel is that it didn't stay that way. And three days later, he rose again, having defeated death and sin. And now whoever believes in him has the security of eternal life and adoption into the family of God. We will not suffer the punishment that we deserve because Jesus already took that punishment on our behalf. And we will forever be treated like Jesus. 
And so to paraphrase St. Augustine, if God has already done the greatest thing in making us sons and daughters, why do we so often doubt that he will be good and faithful to take care of the, the objectively smaller, lesser things? Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so if you know God as Father this morning, this is an encouraging passage. It means that because of Jesus, you can ask and seek and knock with confidence, knowing that God will hear your prayer, even if you don't know what's good for you, even if you're asking for things that are harmful, um, even if your prayers are a bit misdirected, God will give you what's good and what's best for you. And even though we do face challenge in this life and individual circumstances are not always good, he promises to take the bad things of your life and ensure that the ultimate outcome is something good. He's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd say that's a pretty encouraging reason to pray. So we're going to invite the band back up this morning. Um, but as we do so, as I was preparing for this passage, I just felt like God laid a few groups of people on my heart because when I first read this passage, I suppose I did have that sense of like, this is good, but also this, this feels really hard as well. Um, and so as the band do pray, I'd, I'd love for you, if you feel this applies to you, to, to come forward and we'd love to pray for you. But I suppose for people who, firstly, for people who, as soon as I started talking about the goodness of God, like, I'm out, like, I don't, I don't want to listen to this, I can't. Because I've been in preachers where that's happened before. Um, often it's just because it's too painful. You're like, I, I really can't even engage in this. I suppose similarly for people who would say, I, I do know that God is good and I believe he gives good things, but I can't see it in my life right now. Or I'm really struggling to believe it because of this specific circumstance. And then finally, actually, if you don't know Jesus, we would love to pray for you because this is a great passage. And I believe that God gives good things to everybody. Um, it's the reason any of us are, you know, even here today or living or breathing. It's called common grace. But actually, I think a lot of the promises in this passage are applicable only if you know God is your father, because that is the relationship that's been laid out. And actually, it's because of Jesus that we can become part of the family and have that assurance that regardless of what is happening, God will be good to us and God will be for us. So if that's something you'd like to know more about, if you'd love to be able to live your place, uh, live your life from that place of assurance, then we'd love to pray for you as well.